About a year ago, Psychology Today told of a study in which 102 undergraduate students were gathered together, and they were divided into groups, and they did a study that had to do with how to calm people down and, and achieve some sort of peace of mind, at least relatively speaking. And of course, they measured these things scientifically using pulse rates and heart rates and, and blood pressure and this sort of thing. And as they did it, they started, I love this, they started the test by bringing everyone into the same situation where they sat them down and they brought their blood pressure low by showing them cute animal videos. This is, this is actual scientific work. And, and they, they showed them like otters swimming around on their backs, holding their hands all cute. And then they showed them like pugs wearing sweatshirts. And when they were all good and zen and calmed down, then they started the test in earnest in which they, they told each of them that they were to take their bare foot and put it into ice water for four minutes. Now that sounds very unpleasant because it is very unpleasant. And I said they mentioned, I mentioned they brought them into three groups. The three groups were assigned at random and they were as such. Each of these people, before they were part of the, uh, brought in as part of this sample group, were confirmed to have a committed romantic relationship. Group one had their romantic partner, their boyfriend, their girlfriend, their, their serious love interest right there in the room with them while their foot was in the ice water. And they were able to kind of sit there and focus on the love of their life. The second group, they couldn't have that person present, but they were instructed to think about them and just dwell on them. The third group was told, just think about your day, just neutral, like stuff you've done, stuff you're going to do. And they found that the, the partner present people had a far less significant spike in heart rate and blood pressure than those who were just thinking about neutral things. It seemed that loving relationships might act as kind of a buffer against stress responses. And you might be thinking to yourselves, well, why are you talking about this now? Because we're all in our homes with each other and yeah, we have loving relationships, but we're starting to cause stress responses after a week or two weeks quarantined together. Or why would you bring this up, Pastor, when there are people who are not with loved ones who live alone and they're feeling lonely and they're isolated right now? Or there are those who don't live with family, but they're young people who live with roommates who annoy them very much and cause great stress. Well, there is good news, even in this study. It seemed that the second group, those who just thought about their absent boyfriend or girlfriend, had almost exactly the same effect. Good news, I guess, for those who are in long-distance relationships, thinking about a loving relationship. And some other studies uh, later on, it seems, showed that just close, loving friendships had the same effect. It didn't have to be romantic. Thinking about someone brought this kind of response. And I think, yes, this a secondary kind of application here is make sure we're interacting with each other. I'm sure talking on the phone is probably halfway between just thinking about a loved one and being right there with them. Call each other, check in on each other. We're all doing, I think, a fairly good job of that at Judson. But more than that, my focus this morning in bringing up that study is that we all have someone who we can bring to mind our Lord Jesus Christ, who is not only with us in heart and in mind, but truly present in a very real way. And therefore, we ought to have greater peace of mind than even those who have their partner present with them, who, by the way, apparently no longer makes their heart go pitter-pat. It makes their heart kind of slow down to have 
uh, their boyfriend or girlfriend there in the room with them. Well, we have one who is far more comforting. One who created us, redeemed us, sustains us, and loves us. And therefore, we have greater hope to attain peace of mind. And having peace of mind is something that's is trending right now. Very much. People are Googling and trying to find some way to get a little bit more calm and a little bit less harried in these times. They're willing to turn to Eastern philosophy or ancient uh, religious practices or, or humanistic attempts of different kinds. How can I find peace of mind? It's been a question on our minds for all of human history and perhaps never more than it is now. Some time ago, a friend of mine, it's a lie. You know the sermon illustrations, you say a friend of mine, and it's really just a sermon illustration. A friend of mine uh, had found uh, the, the secret to attaining inner peace, peace of mind. It was on Dr. Phil or Dr. Laura or one of these celebrity doctor first name situations. And they were told that the reason we're also stressed, the reason we're also harried is because we have started so many things that we haven't finished. But they're just kind of all these unfinished tasks and things that are hanging around, weighing us down. And so if we're to have inner peace, that peace of mind, we need to finish all the things that we've started. And this woman was so committed to this that the very next morning she got up early, 6 a.m. And even before work, she finished a bag of Doritos, a package of Oreos, and a bottle of wine. And she felt amazing for a time. I'm sure that it very quickly wore off the world's methods for finding inner peace, for finding some kind of peace of mind and, and stillness of the heart. They feel full for a moment, but they are truly empty and very, very temporary. But here in Philippians 4, we read how God made us to have peace. Peace within and peace with Him. And the peace within comes from the peace with Him. It doesn't come from something we do in ourselves or of ourselves, but in how we choose to embrace what God has done in Christ for us. And of course, if you know anything about the Bible, you were raised in the church, you, re you hear this, this passage, you recognize a whole bunch of these verses. This is like a daisy chain of really famous Bible verses, the kind of verses that are often pulled out of context, printed on, you know, bookmarks and t-shirts and things. And, and it turns out that if you take a bunch of these bookmarks and put them in the right order, they're each other's context. And if we look at them, all of them, in the original setting where Paul uh, sent this letter to the church in Philippi, we can gain some great insight here. And so we're going to do that. We're going to look at all of them. And uh, I'm going to know if you log off halfway through and get this, if you start jingling your keys or sighing, can't hear you. So let's start with verse 4. Very famous passage. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Now to me, this almost sounds like the goal, what we're trying to achieve. If you've begun rejoicing, certainly you've already overcome anxiety and worry and achieved some kind of peace within. How else would you be rejoicing? But it's where Paul starts telling us to rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. We made a song out of this. I don't know if you know it. It's a very happy, snappy song. It goes, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Come on, Calvin. And again, I say rejoice. I like the song. No problem with it. I like to sing it, obviously. But I don't think it captures the mood of the original setting here. The, the church in Philippi, to whom the book of Philippians was originally sent as a letter, we read in chapter 1 that they were undergoing not only the general troubles of being Christians in the world, but very specifically, they had adversaries who had singled them out and targeted them because they followed Jesus. 
and they were suffering for the name of Christ. So Paul kind of starts here with what we've had as a continuing theme for the past few weeks, which is how can I find joy while enduring tribulation? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. And I have to wonder if he, he does this repetition thing. Again I say rejoice as if to say, yeah, you heard me. You heard that correctly. Rejoice. Or maybe he repeats it because it seems absurd even to command someone to rejoice, to have joy. You, have joy. This is a binding biblical command from the Lord, meaning that if we don't obey it, we're sinning. A sin of omission. And many of us could give a thousand reasons why right now is not a time to rejoice. From a human perspective, things aren't great right now. Am I right? The world over, the news seems to be worse every day. Many people feel trapped, and many people already felt trapped before a quarantine or lockdown or something told them that they could not leave their homes. They felt trapped in cycles of sin. They felt trapped in a place spiritually that they couldn't get out of. And now you're trapped with your thoughts, and, and you can't even go out and, and distract yourself easily. You have to sit at home, and now we're even more trapped. And in a situation like that, someone would ask, how could I rejoice? Well, I'm glad you asked, because Paul, who wrote these words, was in more or less the same situation. You see, Paul is quarantined while he writes the book of Philippians. He's a quarantined apostle. This is what we call one of the prison epistles. Remember at the book of Acts, as it closes, we looked at the book of Acts for more than a year. A couple months ago, we left Paul, not triumphantly coming to the end of the world with the gospel, but rather under house arrest. Sound familiar? He's under house arrest. He can't go anywhere, although he did have some freedoms where people could come and visit him and that sort of thing. But he was upset, undoubtedly, by this. He knew it was coming, but he had bigger plans that he had to cancel. Also sound familiar? He had plans to go on to Spain after Rome, and sitting there under house arrest, he was not sure. Now, of course, this prison epistle is probably written from an even later imprisonment in which he doesn't have those open freedoms. He's in a cell. He's in chains. And all of his plans that he might have had, he has got to set aside and put them at the feet of Christ. And not only was he trapped, quarantined physically in a cell, but spiritually, he did know what it felt like to be trapped. Yeah, sure, he's able to say things like what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. He's able to say, yes, I'm living a godly life, emulate me as I emulate Christ. But he also at the same time struggles with what a wretched man that I am. What I want to do, I don't do. What I do, that's not what I want to do. And so he struggles with the tension there. In a sense, he's trapped there. He calls himself the chief of sinners. And yet, doubly trapped in a sense, he knows he's truly free. And so he finds throughout the book of Philippians reason after reason to rejoice that he's saved from the eternal death that should rightly be his because of his sin, saved from the eternal death by Jesus who paid the price for his sin by dying on a cross and by rising again on the third day, that Jesus will return someday and that even now God is at work in his life, using him, as he's going to say later in chapter 4, supplying his every need and wretched as he may be, making him a tool of his grace to bring the gospel to others. Notice that all these things that he rejoices about are God's doing. They're God's work. This is the gospel, that, that to have peace, inner peace, it must come from without. You don't find it looking within. You don't find it stilling your own heart. You don't find it inside you. You find it outside of you on Calvary, where Jesus is dying on a cross for our sins, where we find him 
reconciling the world to himself, where we find him having ascended to the right hand of the Father, now making intercession for us continually. That is where we find peace. Peace within must, at its core, be peace with God. And that only comes through Jesus Christ and through his blood. As long as the world continues to say, to find peace, look within, navel-gazing, you know, harness your chi and balance your chakra or learn to love yourself or something, they will not find true peace. It will continue to elude them. But when we found it in Christ, we are able to say rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit, by the way. Not happiness. And this is a distinction we keep making the past few weeks, and I think it's an important time for us to keep making it. Happiness depends on outward circumstances. Even if you achieve great happiness, it's always one phone call, one headline, one executive order away from collapsing in on itself. But no, we are not rooted in those things. We have joy, a fruit of the Spirit, because the Spirit is at work in us and bearing fruit, joy comes to the surface. And I really do believe it was the Holy Spirit leading me from the very beginning of Lent, before any of this began, to focus through Lent on joy, something that is rarely associated with Lent, and how we can find it in situations where we would least expect it to be. We've already emphasized the joy of the Lord as our strength in Nehemiah 8, that our joy is grounded in the Lord, not in our circumstances, and thank God, because look how quickly our circumstances are changing, even day to day, even hour to hour. But our joy can be constant because our God is constant, never changing. This is why Job, at the end of chapter 1, after the first round of the enemy trying to pull away all of the opinions that would hold up his happiness, Job, while he's not happy, is able to arise, tear his robe and shave his head, signs of mourning, and then fall on the ground and worship. Scripture shows us that we can be joyful within when all we see without is darkness in the world. We can be joyful when we, like Paul, are quarantined and every new development seems to be darker than the last development. Worldly happiness does not endure like that. It's like the Doritos and the Oreos, right? A quick dopamine hit, a sugar rush, and then you crash and it's gone. In fact, Jesus tells us not only is this kind of worldly happiness, this, this fake joy, this cheap knockoff that the world offers us, not only is it ultimately unsatisfying, it's accursed. Luke chapter 6, Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. That doesn't mean Christians need to walk around and be grumpy all the time. It means that if we find our fulfillment, our satisfaction, our gratification in what the world offers now, later on, it will fall away. It falls away because the circumstances change. Life always changes. Change is the only constant. And as a Baptist, that's a hard truth for me to embrace. But the peace comes from without and comes within, and it gives birth and bears fruit in joy. But the joy can't stay inside. It has to seep out, and that's where we go to verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Huh? Your reasonableness. Another translation says, let your gentleness be known to everyone. Those don't seem like the same thing. If someone said to me, oh, my husband's a really gentle man, and someone else said to me, my husband's a very reasonable man. I have two very different pictures of who this husband is. Reasonable seems very, mm, gentle seems kind of warm and fuzzy. Here's some more translations. Let your moderation be known to everyone. Your forbearance, your kindness, your consideration. Huh? It seems like a very broad group of translations. It's hard to even draw a circle around them. So let me help 
The Greek word here comes from a root that means to yield. Maybe the best translation would be let your yieldedness be known to all. Or Hendrickson calls it your big-heartedness. Or I'm tempted to just go with gentleness with the understanding that it comes from the idea of being willing to yield. That if we will live with joy within, we cannot doggedly demand what we deserve, but we have to be willing, more willing, to be wronged rather than risk wronging someone else. Like Jesus, we would not be willing to snuff out the smoldering wick or break the bent reed, but rather we would bind up the brokenhearted and fan the flame of the smoldering wick out of love. Jesus said, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. So we've got here now, not one, but three fruits of the Spirit. That's a third of them. Joy, peace, gentleness. And they're fruits of the Spirit, not gifts of the Spirit. Gifts of the Spirit, different people get different gifts. Some teaching, some you know, hospitality, some prophecy, some of these other. The, the gifts of the Spirit are buried, but the fruit of the Spirit must be present when the Spirit is having His way in us. And at this time, I think we really need that fruit of the Spirit we call gentleness. We, we really need yieldedness. We really need a reasonableness as people are starting to get cabin fever a little bit, stuck in the house all the time with maybe kids who don't want to do schoolwork, maybe with parents who don't want to help because they're so busy and harried themselves, trying to get that go-to-meeting loaded while somebody is streaming Korean soap operas and using all the bandwidth, trying to, to get the regular life going, while at the same time constantly being barraged with new facts, new figures, new fear. People with different takes and political views, even though they're in different rooms, now in the internet and social media age, can spend all their time airing them and doing it in very obnoxious ways, and we can get frustrated and we can want to lash out at people. Remember, gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. A gentle answer turns away wrath. Keep peace, not only in yourself, but in your house, with gentleness. Some people are, are horribly upset by decisions that are out of their hands that have now cut their hours deeply or even caused them to be laid off. And there is the temptation to be very on edge and even bitter, and it's understandable. Gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit even when times are incredibly difficult. But he says here, not just to be gentle to those who are in our homes, not just to be gentle to those who are uh, members of our household and close to us, but to everyone. You see, everyone should be the subject of our gentle spirit, the, the recipient of our love and mercy. Because here's the thing, everyone's nice to someone at some time with some motive, right? Jesus said, if you greet only your brothers and friends in the marketplace, you're doing what the hypocrites do. You're doing what the tax collectors and heathen do. You're not doing any more. You're not being extra righteous. I mean, even Bin Laden probably helped somebody move like to a different cave at some point. We are called to show gentleness to everyone, to share the peace and joy of the Lord with everyone. You know, the other night I was driving and even though we're all locked in here when you do drive somewhere it seems like the fewer cars are making up for it by being extra obnoxious and i was headed to the church and i was getting off 496 at that one spot where i want to turn and do a michigan left so i can go south on cedar street and i was in the correct lane you got to be in the left lane before you turn if you're going to be in the left lane right after you turn lansing i don't know why you can't get this in your head and there was somebody else who wanted to get in front of me now listen 
15 years ago in my mid-20s. If that happened, I would have punched the gas and just blown right by them. But I'm more mature now. So I eased on the gas so that just barely they wouldn't be able to get in. And then this verse came to my mind. Let your gentleness, your yieldedness, uh uh-oh, that's a traffic term, be known to everyone. I won't tell you whether or not it came to mind quickly enough for me to do the right thing. Wretched man that I am, but Christ is working in me, making me more and more like his son Jesus. Well, how can we be this way? How can we, how can we achieve this in the best of circumstances, much less in stressful and difficult times? Well, he tells us that here. In verse five, let your gentleness be known to all. The Lord is near. Remember that. The Lord is near. That's number one. How we can achieve this kind of joy and peace in difficult times. Remember, the Lord is at hand. What does he mean by this? That God is watching, so do the right thing? Maybe, but I think more than that, Paul, as he often does, is focused on the second coming. The time of the Lord's return is near, so hold on, endure, be patient, be gentle, be kind. Jesus is coming again. There's this this tension of the already and the not yet that all the promises of Scripture, we can hold on to them because he will come again soon. Either we will go to him or he'll come to us soon. But secondly, I think there's an even broader reason why we remember that God is near. Because he will never leave us or forsake us. He is always with us. He promised that until the end of the age. I am with you always. How much better is that than having your foot in ice water and your girlfriend nearby? We're told he is always with us, the God of the universe, the God who loved us so much and in such a way that he became flesh and walked amongst us and endured life in a sin-cursed world while we rejected him and mocked him and then died a sinner's death, although he had no sin of his own, so that we could be saved. Remember the words of the psalmist, the Lord is near to all who call upon him. So remember, the Lord is near. That's first. Secondly, how do we achieve this? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. He presents to us prayer as an alternative to anxiety. And it's a healthy alternative. You keep anxiety bottled up inside. There's two things you can do with it. One, you can just keep it in there until you kind of explode. Keep it in there so that it begins to take a toll on your mind and your spirit and your your body, your health. I I have a show that I watch to, to kind of cool me out. I'll watch an episode here and there because it's just a nice way to remember there are still nice things and nice people in the world. It's called The Repair Shop. And it's in England, and it's this cute little shop where people bring old things that are important to them that are broken, and experts fix them and give them back, and then everyone cries, and I cry a little bit, but, you know, I won't admit to it, but I guess I just did. And then, uh, you know, they're all happy, and that's the end of the show, and I go, okay, back to life. Well, I watched one the other day, and this guy had this little steam engine. It was from the early 1900s, a toy steam engine. Little water goes in the top, almost looked like a tin can. Little paraffin wax discs go underneath and they burn and they, they cause the water to boil and the steam engine goes forward. It wasn't working. So the guy took it apart, cleaned it, put it back together. And I'm thinking, oh, this thing is so cool. It's so cute. I wish I could do that kind of thing and fix these little toys. And then he takes it outside and he sets it down and he's trying it out and he backs away. And you see that he's like pale and he swallows really hard. He says, I hope I did a good job because this could actually explode. Even this little cute toy, if enough pressure is inside and it's not let out, eventually it's going to blow. We can't just keep it all inside. Or the other alternative, if you're going to turn to anxiety instead of the alternative of prayer, is that we'll turn it outward in bitterness or lash out 
at people or, or maybe passive-aggressive comments, either a big boom or a long hissing stream of sarcasm and anything but gentleness. For Jesus, though, as for Paul, the cure for worry was prayer. Jesus often went to lonely places and prayed, often all night, certainly well into the night. See, prayer and worry are like fire and water. They can't coexist in the same place at the same time. Which one's fire and which one water depends on which one you use to douse the other. Worry can douse your prayer life as easily as prayer can douse your worry. What kind of prayer succeeds in dousing our anxiety and counteracting it? Well, he tells us that as well. It's wonderful what happens when you look at these things in context. First of all, he says the kind of prayer that is going to bring about peace with God and the joy of the Lord is prayer with thanksgiving. It was not that long ago we were reading this passage about Paul and Silas being imprisoned in this very same town to which this letter was written, Philippi. They were in a Philippian jail. It was the middle of the night. They'd been beaten They'd been, they'd been beaten badly, and they were lying there, and they were thinking, what is going to become of us? And what did they do? Did they start to speculate? I bet tomorrow we're going to be put to death. I bet we're going to be thrown in prison. I bet did they start to cry out to God and say, God, we're so angry. Why, why, we're your guys. Why wouldn't you? No. In the middle of the night, they were found singing hymns to the Lord. Thanksgiving was what they chose to be the language of their prayers in that moment, and it it circumvented, it short-circuited their worry. And thanksgiving, both for former gifts we've received and former answers to prayer, and the blessings we're receiving in the present, they give us a firm ground to stand on as we think about the future. The same God who was there for us before will be there for us tomorrow. The same God is with us now, holding us in his strong hands, which is why Paul begins almost all of his letters by heaping thanks upon God and continually beats the drum of how important it is for Christians to give thanks. It's been said to pray without thanksgiving is to clip the wings of prayer. To put it a little more positively, we might say thanksgiving gives wings to our prayers. Whatever the case, it's vital. Thanksgiving is vital to the kind of prayer that results in the joy of the Lord and the peace of God. So what kind of prayer douses anxiety? First, the kind of prayer that is soaked in thanksgiving. Second, the kind that makes our requests known. Twice he talks of supplications and then petitions. Let your petitions be known to him. I think so often we're afraid to tell God what, what it is that we really want and we couch it in theological terms and overly broad language because we're afraid that he won't answer our prayers and then we will find our faith hurt in that moment. Our faith will suffer. But we can't do that. That's not faith. Jesus says, ask in faith and believe that you will receive in my name. It's good to ask for big things. Yes, pray for the whole situation in the whole world. Pray for, for every nation on earth right now that's struggling with a pandemic. Yes, but don't stop there. Make your petitions specific and specifically known. Lest your prayer be for everything and therefore a prayer for nothing. Hank Hanegraaff, maybe a little too cutely, puts it this way. So often we pray for masses and classes and in the end achieve nothing but flashes and ashes. Eh. But the point stands. Specific things motivate us. Specific things worry us and concern us. These things are properly brought to God. Nowhere in Scripture does it tell us to put to death our desires. Only the carnal desires. You have good desires. You have worries. You have cares. 
Nowhere in scripture does it tell us to, to push those things down deep into your gut and lock them away there, but rather to bring all of these things to God, submitting our will to his. And of course, I can't not bring up 1 Peter 5, 7 here. And yes, I brought it up a couple weeks ago. It is such an important passage. If you haven't memorized it, memorize it. You'll need it in the weeks to come. Cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Or I think the King James here is better because it gets that word play in there. Cast all your cares upon him for he careth for you. Cast your cares on him. He cares for you. Almost sounds like there's an extra word play in there. He cares for you. Like if you say, Oh, I gotta go and grab some eggs from the store. And I say, I'll do that for you. If you trust me, you're gonna say, okay, I don't need to buy eggs. If you think I'm gonna forget, you might go buy them as well. And then we'll have more eggs than we need. But if, if God says, cast your cares upon me, because I care for you, I think we can trust Him to do the caring for us. And we don't have to take our time and our energy in worrying and continually spinning around in those kinds of circles. Cast your cares upon him. He cares for you. Now, of course, in the Greek, the word is peri. It means he cares concerning you. He cares about you. But I think the, the concept is sound. And in all of this, specifics are key to the kind of prayer that Paul is talking about here. In the same way that bless everyone everywhere, amen, is a weak prayer, thanks for all the blessings you've given me, amen, is an equally weak prayer of thanksgiving. When you give thanks to God, try to run out of things to thank him for. You won't, but try. Try to outdo yourself in thankfulness. Remember when, when Jesus said, listen, I, I healed 10 lepers, but only one came back. How come, how come when I healed 10 lepers, one comes back and says, thank you, and the other nine are just out there floating around in the ether, all happy by their circumstances. Only one of them is here for peace and joy. I have to wonder how often God says, where are the other 99,000? Did I not bless 100,000 in Lansing today with life and health? And even if they're ill with health care, all of the things that we could thank God for. Cast your cares upon him. He cares for you. Like most of you, I enjoy reading different translations of John Calvin's work. And what? I came across this wonderful archaic statement in a, a version of his commentary on Philippians. Calvin writes this, Trusting in God's providence alone is the only remedy for tranquilizing our minds. Of course, that's an archaic use of the word tranquilize. Before tranquilize meant take a pill that makes you sleepy or shoot an animal with a dart that makes it fall asleep. It meant to make tranquil. That trusting in God's providence alone is the only remedy for making our minds tranquil, peaceful, giving us peace of mind. But I think we often go the other way. We say, yeah, no, I, what I need is a tranquilizer. I'm going to have my anxieties, my worries, my fears with me. They're going to live inside me no matter what until I die. And so the best I can hope is temporarily to tranquilize them for a short time to put them to sleep. And we wind up in this vicious cycle of uh, information, information. Headline, headline, scrolling through my phone. Oh my goodness, look at all the horrible stuff that's happening and all the stuff that's coming and watching 24-hour cable news until I'm about to explode and then I go, oh my goodness, I'm going nuts. Now I need to tranquilize all these anxieties that I've created. So what happens if I watch every season of Friends in one day? For a while, I'll forget. But the cure for worry is not to shut it up or shut it down. It's not apathy. It's not to tranquilize it with distraction or amusement, but to pour out your heart to God, confessing every worry to him. And in verse 7, we see the blessed result of this. And the peace of God, 
which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The result of prayer as an alternative to anxiety is the peace of God. The peace of God, the antidote to worry. We continue to have the peace of God as long as he is God, which is like forever. This peace, like the joy of the Lord, does not depend on my present situation other than that I am situated in Christ Jesus. It's like a toddler runs to his mother or his father when he's scared. And as soon as he's picked up, all thought that there might still be danger or something to worry about fades away. So we should be able to turn to our God because he is ever on the throne. And when we feel anxiety welling up, rather than push it down, the right thing to do is to let it well up and up and up and give it another push up and bring it to him. And then we will receive not just any peace, but the peace that surpasses understanding. I think here of the great hymn of the faith. I think Luther wrote it. It goes, I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. You know that one? Calvin, you know that song? I got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. You're supposed to say where? Where? Down in my heart. Yeah, it makes me think of Sunday school opening at Essexville Baptist. There was this cute little old lady named Mrs. J. She was 600 years old, and she played the piano, and we would sing that song every week, all the Sunday school classes together before Sunday school, and she would always go, where? And, oh, my goodness. Oh, I would pay a lot of money to see Mrs. J again for a few minutes. I can't wait till I see her in glory. I got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Second verse. I got the peace that passes understanding down in my heart. Joy and the peace that passes understanding going together because they are, they're part of the, the fruit of the Spirit, of the same Spirit. By the way, the third verse, I got the wonderful joy of my blessed Redeemer way down in the depths of my heart. And if you can say that ten times fast, you grew up Baptist. Of course, we can't forget the best verse, the last verse. And if the devil doesn't like it, he can sit on attack. Ouch! Sit on attack. The enemy does not want us to have joy. The enemy does not want us to have peace. But we have the peace that passes understanding, surpasses our ability to grasp it, defies our comprehension. I once heard the great Chuck Swindoll preaching on this notion, the peace that passes understanding. And he went through this just series of illustration after illustration after illustration of situations in which he should have been freaking out, but wasn't and felt peace. And he said there were people all around him saying, why aren't you freaking out? And they all assumed it was because he was Chuck Swindoll and he must have some amazing wisdom or some something about him when in reality he was thinking the same thing. Why am I not freaking out? You see, the peace passes, surpasses understanding and yet it is real. We praise God when our prayers are answered exactly as we offered them up and that's good, that's thanksgiving, that's worship, it's good, but it's when our prayers are not answered the way that we wanted and we still praise God anyway that we've attained a peace that passes understanding. People plan and scheme to try and create peace, inner peace, peace of mind for ourselves, by creating the perfect home, relationships with no turmoil at all, by the way they think or don't think, clear your mind of all thoughts, hoping to get peace of some kind. And yet, just as the joy of the Lord is far beyond human joy and happiness, God's peace surpasses our understanding, all of our plans, all of our schemes, all of our human attempts to secure it. And what does the peace of God do? The peace of God is the, the subject of the sentence. It's the one doing something. And what it does is it guards our hearts and minds. And don't miss the fact that he uses the word guards here. Paul's in prison, quarantine, remember? 
and he is locked with a chain to a guard all the time. One guard shift is over, another guy comes in. All right, here you go. Uh, Claudius hands the chain over, next guy is there. He's always under guard by Roman guards for whom I keep this guy in custody or I die. So it's very, very vigilant guarding. And as he's writing this, Paul says, this peace that passes understanding guards our hearts and minds, will not let them go. Not a chance. Quarantined here. And by the way, we joked on Wednesday that Paul was better off than us because he could at least have visitors. He wasn't. Under lock and key, he was in a horrible, sad situation where almost everyone would have lost heart. But he did not. He says in that moment, rejoice in the Lord always. Because this peace guards us against the emotional knots and the racing thoughts that could shipwreck our faith or drag us down occupying our minds for hours and free our minds for profitable thoughts. You ever think about how unprofitable worry is? We talked about this on Wednesday in our our virtual Bible study. How it does no good. Jesus said, who by worrying can add one day to his life, one hour to his life? No one. You, You get in these cycles of thinking, 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 what might happen, what might happen? And at the end of it, all you've gotten is worked up. All you've done is hurt your own health, but you haven't accomplished anything. Instead, we can think profitable things. Verse 8, such a famous verse. Finally, brother, you like that word finally? Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, by the way, that doesn't mean, ah, oh, lovely, a sunset. It's prosphila. It means pointed toward love. Whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything excellent, admirable, praiseworthy, think about these things. Yes, God will guard our hearts and minds, but Paul tells us that we too must guard our minds, our thoughts. We must think on these things. doesn't make much sense if God says, I'll guard your hearts and minds, and we're over here throwing the gates wide to let any thoughts come in, wicked thoughts and anxious thoughts, thoughts of, of unbelief and doubt. When you have doubts, naturally deal with them, struggle with them, wrestle with them, and give them to God. Together we can deal with these things. And when we are anxious, when we're worried, when we're unable to think with the transformed mind that we as Christians are given as a gift, we can't have the same mind in us that was in Christ Jesus. We can't take every thought captive to obedience in Christ as we read in 1 Corinthians 10. If we're thinking on carnal, selfish, worldly, wicked things, we're not going to have the joy of the Lord. We're not going to have the peace of God. And yet, sometimes I think we, we... elevate worried thoughts as if they are kind of pious. fact is, Scripture presents anxious and worried thoughts as equal and opposite companions to wicked and worldly thoughts. One is not better than the other. If we're always worried, always anxious, always preoccupied, we will not have the peace of God. Remember that, that thorn metaphor in the parable of the sower. We talked about this last week. As the the seed is sown, that's the gospel, some of it lands in thorny soil. It springs up, it's accepted, there's growth right away, but thorns come, and thorns are described as two things. The deceitfulness of wealth and all the world has to offer, all the satisfaction and pleasures of the world, and then equal and opposite, all the worries of this world. Those two things can be thorns, and what do the thorns do? They keep us from bearing fruit, including the fruit of the Spirit including gentleness, joy, and peace. In verse 9, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Practice these things. The God of peace will be with you, and you will have 
peace. Joy first gets into our heads and our hearts. It's guarded by the peace of God. And then your actions, the and then part, show that we are bearing fruit, the necessary result of this peace of mind in our lives. And that becomes fuel for more peace, which becomes fuel for more holiness, which becomes fuel for more peace, a much better vicious cycle than the one we get into with worry. Our peace is the result of God's grace, which is why it is almost always mentioned in that order in Scripture. So, how did this all work itself out in Paul's quarantine? The last verses of the passage, they end with a very famous one. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I've gone off on a hobby horse over the years, here and there, about how that last verse, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, is often ripped out of context and misused and applied to all sorts of things that are of no eternal significance and, and turned into a rah-rah, I'm awesome, rather than a God is awesome and I am the subject of his awesome work. But let's look at the actual context here. Oh wait, we already did. That's what all this has been. The context of, I can do all these things through him who strengthens me. What are these things? Being content in need, in plenty, in abundance, in, in want, in hunger, in quarantine, in a prison cell. Content and filled with the joy of the Lord. I, I've seen some people being rather sarcastic about the, the struggles that some are having with, with a quarantine. Uh, I've seen some people saying, Oh, yeah, you got to sit on your couch and eat chips. You can do this. Yeah, you can do it. I don't think that's helpful. I don't think we want to minimize people's struggles because there are those who are sitting on their couch worried about their elderly parents or their elderly husband or wife or their elderly self. There are young parents worried about their immunocompromised children. They're, they're worried about their spouse who works in a hospital. They're worried about their own health because their job is essential and can't be done from home. They're worried about finances because their family has faced a layoff. We don't see Paul in this passage minimizing his struggles or the pressure that he's under. In fact, he often will catalog it in Scripture. But then he turns to a passage like this and says, I can be content in all of it. I know that in him who strengthens me, I can do all things. You can do this, my friends. You can endure this. You can even be content in this and rejoice in this. And all of that with the peace that surpasses our understanding. The problem with taking that verse out of context and making it my life verse or something is that it's about what I can do. And it ignores that all of this is tangential to what God has done, which is what saved us, which is what brought us peace, which is what empowers us to do anything at all apart from sin. We can't focus on what I can do. What I can do, I often fail. Even Paul says, what I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, that I do. But what Christ did, he did perfectly. So finally, first time Paul was saying it, this time I'm saying it. Let me close with some application points. Three, in, in fact. First, in this time, do not feed your anxiety. It will douse your prayer. It will short-circuit your peace. Do not do it. Aaron and I use a term in our house, screen-sucking. We got it from a book called Crazy Busy. And it talks about how you often will find yourself not looking something up, 
Not taking five minutes to relax by going on social media, but just scrolling, staring. Screen sucking is a waste of time in life, but in this time, people are even more affected by it. I've heard the term doom surfing. Just reading more and more and more about all that's going wrong and adding and piling on more and more anxiety. Don't go down that road. You're, you're, you're tempting yourself. You're tempting God in that sense. You're testing God saying, yes, I, I trust you to keep me from anxiety and I'll cast all my cares on you, but I'm going to keep on piling them on my own back unnecessarily. Read a few headlines a day. Remember when the news was on at six and then it was done until tomorrow? Don't go the opposite direction either and try to tranquilize yourself through distraction. Rather, application number two, repent of your anxiety, of your joylessness, of your prayerlessness, of your thanklessness, and making your own peace or trying to. It's a perfect time for this. You're at home, even if you're working longer hours than you used to be. You don't get to go out on the weekends. You don't get to do what you used to do. You've got time. Turn in prayer to God. Repent of these things. And he will give you a new start. He will give you the peace that passes understanding. The God of peace will be with you. That's a promise we have right here. Rejoice, give thanks, bring him requests and supplications. Give him your worries and feel the peace of God guiding your thoughts and your actions. You know, we can become very rigid with our plans and my ways, my routines, like hardened clay. If you try to bend it, it will break. But when difficult times come and overturn plans, and undo our routines. Those can be opportunities to surrender to Him, and He will resupplicate us, make us supple again, reanimate us, make us soft and moldable clay, and form us more and more into the image of His Son, Jesus. And number three, remember, as Paul says, God is near. God is near at hand to all who call on His name. He will be here long after this is all over, long after this is a blip in the past. He is constant. He is forever. If I hear one more person say, this is the new normal, in the words of St. Anselm, I'm going to puke. Because it's not new normal. It's the opposite. It's a temporary exception to normal. This too shall pass. And when it passes, God will still be on his throne. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us during this time peace that we would be anxious about nothing but in everything give thanks, that we would offer praise, prayers, supplications, that, Lord, we would rejoice always. And again, we would rejoice. Lord, we know it's a difficult time. Anxiety is waiting for us. We, we read in Genesis that sin was crouching at Cain's door and wanted to master it. Well, we know that worry and anxiety is crouching at ours. And, Lord, we pray we would turn to you, cast our cares upon you, and, Lord, find the joy of the Lord and the peace that passes understanding. Amen.